And you will fast again, but you'll fast after I die on the cross and after I'm taken away. Then my disciples will fast. And today we fast and we pray because we look forward to that time when Jesus Christ will return and institute his kingdom on earth. And we long for that day. So now we come to a fourth dialogue. And in this fourth dialogue, Jesus addresses his own disciples. And in this conversation that he's having with his own disciples, he says to them, I want you to understand that there's a great need for evangelism in this world. The need is great. There's a tremendous harvest that's out there. But we need more workers. And so he tells them that they are to go about making disciples who will make disciples. And in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, we have a message about seeing, feeling, and doing. And I want you to write down this sentence because this will give you the theme of our message. This is what I want you to catch today from God's Word. Disciples of Jesus need to see as Jesus saw, feel as Jesus felt, so that we can do as Jesus did. Let me repeat that for you. Disciples of Jesus need to see as Jesus saw and feel as Jesus felt so that we will do as Jesus did. Now looking to God's word in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at the 35th verse, we read this. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this record of your word to us. Um, thank you that the word tells us that no one has ever seen God face to face, but Jesus has declared him to us. And in Jesus, we see a reflection of who you are as he is God in human flesh. And we thank you for everything that we see in him for the closer we look at Jesus, unlike the closer we look at ourselves. The more we look at Jesus, the more we see his perfections. The more we look at ourselves, the more we see our imperfections. Thank you, God, for knowing that we needed a Savior, that we couldn't save ourselves. And thank you that that Savior came in the form of Jesus. We've been singing about him today. We've been praying to him. Now we read his word and we hear from him. And God, we ask that you would teach us, each of us, each one. Today, by the power of your spirit, minister the word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this 35th verse gives a summary of Jesus' activity at this particular time in his ministry. 
And what the verse tells us in verse 35 is that Jesus was going about and he was doing certain activities. He was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing as he was going about the towns throughout the area of Galilee. And as he was doing that, on one particular occasion, as they were passing through one of these towns, there was an occasion for him to have a conversation with his disciples. And he says to his disciples, when he looks at the crowd, it says that he had compassion for them, and he gave them a charge. What is that charge? And more importantly, what does that charge mean for you and me? Well, first of all, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to notice with me from God's Word this morning that we need to see as Jesus sees. In verse 36, Jesus and the disciples, they were looking at the same crowd, but Jesus saw something his disciples didn't see. You know, you look at the same people. One person sees one thing, Jesus sees one thing, but his disciples weren't seeing the same thing Jesus saw. And what did Jesus see? Well, Jesus saw the great need of the lost. Verse 36 tells us, he says, that they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that word distressed means troubled or vexed. It points to the load of problems that people apart from Christ bear. Jesus says he saw troubled people. And the scripture tells us that he saw people who were dejected. And the word dejected means to be downcast or literally to be thrown down. And it's describing a condition of a person who is without the Savior, who is helpless and feels forsaken. Now remember, if there's one thing that we have learned in this series, and I've Hope this has come through over and over again. If there's one of the things that I've tried to get you to understand is that when Jesus speaks, Jesus is not just making up new stuff. When Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks the Word of God. And when He talks and He makes application, He is referencing a passage of Scripture which then the only Bible they had was the Old Testament. And so Jesus has a particular scripture in mind, and Jesus is a rabbi. And one of the tools that rabbis use is what is called a kesher, K-E-S-H-E-R. And the word kesher actually means connection. And so when a rabbi would be teaching or a rabbi would be talking, they would throw out one of these keshers, And a Kesher was a reference to an Old Testament passage of Scripture for them to be able to apply what's being said in their minds to get a visual picture of what what Jesus is speaking. Now the phrase that I want you to notice that he uses is that the people that he saw were like sheep without a shepherd. And that passage recalls for us Ezekiel chapter 34. And I want to read from Ezekiel chapter 34 this morning, beginning at the 11th verse, and you follow along with me. We're going to read several verses in this chapter. It says this, For this is what the Lord God says, See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among 
his scattered flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and in all the inhabitant places of the land. I will tend them in good pastures, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will be down in good grazing mountains of Israel. I will, rend, I, will send a, I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. Now reading on in verse 20 of the same chapter, listen to what it says. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and burned uh, and butted all the weak ones with your horns until you scattered them all over, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." Now, right away, you should recognize that this is Ezekiel, the prophet, who is speaking. He prophesied after the time of David, king in Israel. So he's not talking about the historical David that we know of. He's speaking of the David that the Bible defines. The son of David is a descriptor of the coming Messiah. Jesus chooses this passage of Scripture and makes this reference because, unlike us, the Jews memorized much of the Old Testament they could recite from memory. They studied it from childhood. And those who were in any kind of legal profession, such as the scribes and the Pharisees, they had memorized all of these passages of Scripture. So when Jesus would make a statement like this, their mind would not just kind of wander, but it would go to certain places in the Bible where the Bible uses these certain phrases. Now, if you were paying attention in the passage of Scripture, you'll notice that Jesus is bringing an indictment against those who were the shepherds of his people. They were supposed to be tending the flock, but instead, what were they doing? They were abusing the flock. They were selfishly minded. They were focused on themselves. Instead of tending to the flock, they were fleecing the flock. And Jesus says of those people, he said, here we have a herding group of people and they're not taking care of them. Now to whom is he saying these words? Remember, Jesus and his disciples looked at the same group of people. Jesus saw one thing in the crowd the disciples didn't see. 
So he pulls up this passage of Scripture and he says, I'm going to show you what you're looking at. I want you to see it. And I don't want you to be like those who were in the Old Testament who neglected the needs of the people. Now I want us to bring that a little closer to home this morning. Friends, there are people who are distressed and dejected all around us. And they're here in this room every week. But I want to ask you a question. Well, rather, let me point something out. You know, hurting people don't wear neon signs that blink I'm hurting, love me. So here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you this morning, when you're here on Sunday morning, are you typically mostly concerned about shaking a few hands and getting to your usual spot? Are you typically in a hurry to go visit with your friends at church and walk right past those who are hurting? Like Jesus, we need to see the great need of lost people. We need to see the hurting. We need to be more concerned about them than we are about our own little selfish agenda. But I want you to notice also when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he saw a great harvest of lost people. He said the harvest is plentiful. You remember this is not a statement, uh, I ask you to remember with me, this is not a statement that Jesus makes just one time and then it's a, a one-off and he's done with it. If you look over in John chapter 4, you remember John chapter 4? There's this conversation that he has with a woman at the well. The disciples leave him there by himself. He, and they go into the town and Jesus is there to visit with this woman. And what does he say to his disciples when they come back? They find him speaking to this Samaritan woman. What he says to his disciples is he says, I want you to open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're wide unto harvest. Then in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to send his disciples out. And when he sends his disciples out, he, he sends them out on a mission. He gives them a charge. He said, I want you to go out there and I want you to share with them this good news of the kingdom that it has come. And he says, and I want you to see that the harvest is abundant. There's a harvest of lost people waiting to be reaped. And the harvest doesn't depend upon our techniques. It's in the sovereignty of God. God's planned a harvest of lost people, and we need to see it. And Jesus also saw the great need for workers to get involved as reapers. It says in verse 37, the workers are few. Now, if you've been paying attention at all, you'll notice that Jesus is changing metaphors here. He's been talking about sheep. Now he's talking about farming and harvesting. 
G. Campbell Morgan made this observation about these two metaphors. He said, these two metaphors show the two sides of the same matter. He says, the sheep and the shepherd show man's need met by God. The good shepherd seeks out lost sheep and he ministers to them. The harvest and the workers show God's need met by man. Now I know what you're thinking, God doesn't have any needs. But do you realize that God, in his awesome power and great wisdom, has decided that the way he is going to reach lost people is by using people that he has already saved. God saves people through saved people. Jesus' viewpoint is that of a farmer who has a great crop that's ready for harvest, but he doesn't have enough reapers. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, you got the Lord who's going to accomplish all his purpose, and that includes the salvation of the elect. And at the same time, he has chosen to save lost people through those whom he's already saved. To be like our Savior, we need to see what Jesus saw. The great need of lost people, the great harvest of lost people, and the great need for more workers in the harvest of lost people. We want to be like Jesus. We need to get involved as reapers in his harvest. Secondly, I want you to notice from our text that we need to feel as Jesus felt. In verse 36, notice what it says there. It says that when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. See the connection? The Greek verb translated felt compassion is used frequently of Jesus in the Gospels. And when Jesus is used, uses this word, it is connected to a noun, which means inward parts. And what it's telling us is that when a person feels compassion, it's that they feel something for them deep down inside. Deep down inside, Jesus felt something for this crowd of people. I want you to notice that if anybody could have ridiculed them or blamed them for being in the position they were in, he certainly could have done that, if that's what he wanted to do. You made your bed, lie in it. He could have rubbed their nose. He would have been totally justified to just rub their nose in it. He wasn't responsible for them being in the mess that they were in. But that's not what our God does. He looks at people who are in a mess who can't help themselves and feels compassion for them. Reader's Digest. Am I showing my age yet? We talk about some magazines like they were ancient history. Remember when we used to have libraries and all books and all that kind of stuff? There was a Reader's Digest article. They published an article. And you might want to cover your children's ears for this illustration, by the way, for a moment. 
I warned you. I gave you advance notice. In this Reader's Digest article, they published the story of a bold pastor who was preaching to his congregation. Sounds safe, right? And as he began his message, he started his message off this way. I want to make three points in my message this morning. Point number one. There are millions of people around the world who are going to go to hell. Second, most of us sitting here today don't give a damn about that. And then he paused and he waited. And then he said this. And my third point is, most of the people sitting in this church are more concerned about the fact that I said, damn, than they are about the millions of people who are lost and going to hell. You think about it. I've been around churches for a while. You think about it. We can get so worked up about the trivial and lose sight of what's significant. We should feel as Jesus felt about lost people. You know, others can sense whether or not you care about them. When they feel our love, you know what happens. I mean, what happens to you when you can feel somebody really cares about you? You, you want to listen. You want to hear more of what they have to say. When we feel compassion for somebody, they can tell it. You know, one of the things I learned about working with young people is they can smell a phony. And when you're around young people, there's two things about young people. You're either playing on your turf or their turf. Our turf is the church. But say Zach goes over to one of the young people's house, knocks on the door. Young person hollers out to the parent, who is it? It's Zach from church. Now Zach's at their house, but guess what? It's still his turf. Zach rolls up into McDonald's on Friday night at 10.30 hops out of his truck, walks over to a group of young people, Zach's on their turf. And right away, people will know whether Zach is real or he's a phony. But it's not just Zach, it's true of all of us. Jesus felt compassion. But also, we need to do as Jesus did. We look at verses 35 and 38. I want to point out a couple of things in closing this morning. In Matthew 35, that provides the summary of Jesus' ministry, and it says that he was doing three things. He was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. This verse tells us what Jesus did. 
And when you boil all that down, when you synthesize that, it tells us that Jesus, first of all, ministered to people's physical and spiritual needs. The word ministry that we throw around so often, in fact, uh, this last week, playing golf, and I didn't have a partner, and a guy drove up in his cart, and he said, they told me I was supposed to come play with you. So we're visiting, we're talking on the golf course. He said, what would you do for a living? I said, I'm a minister. Well, you know, automatically he assumes I'm a pastor. That's a normal response. Um, I asked him what he did for a living. He said he was the retired assistant director of EMTs for the Nashville Fire Department. And I wanted to share that illustration with you this morning because it gives us a good idea of what we think of when we hear the word minister. When we hear the word minister, what we think of, we think of the paid church staff. But the word that comes from the New Testament is the word uh, doulos, and it has various forms. Doulos means slave, and it has uh, different usages. Diakoneo is a word which means to serve. And it's actually a word that's used throughout the New Testament. And it's not used to just speak of those people who are in professional ministry. It's speaking about all Christians are ministers. Now we have a few persons who serve as pastors, who serve on our church staff. But we've got as many ministers in this church as we have members. That's a powerful army of God's servants. And Jesus, when he's speaking these words to these people, he's saying, I want you to understand, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come into you at the time of of salvation. What's going to happen is, is you're going to receive spiritual gifts to be able to minister to others in my name. That's what ministry is. Ministry is serving Jesus and serving others in Jesus' name. And we've all been given a spiritual gift. And spiritual gifts are used to build up the body of Christ, to edify other people around us. Now, clearly not everybody in this room is gifted to teach publicly. I mean, if that were the case, it would rule out a great many of us in this room who don't feel like I've been called to teach publicly. Some of you have. Praise God. It's a gift. Many of you have not. And so how do we relate to Jesus' ministry? What does this mean for us? How does it play out in our lives in a practical way? Well, you may not be called to teach publicly. But do you know what? Every person in this room ought to be able to take what you have been taught from the Word of God and go and teach it to somebody else. Now, let's, let's just pretend you're in a conversation. And that conversation goes over onto the subject of spiritual things. Somebody may say something about God. Somebody may say something about Jesus. Somebody may say something about eternal life. And man, it is, you know, it is off base as far as you know and far as you've been taught. And here's what I want you to understand. You exercise that gift of teaching when in that moment of conversation, you pause And you say to that person, let me tell you what the Bible says about that. And in that way, you see, what you're doing is you're teaching other people what God has taught you. Now, not every one of us has been called to teach 
publicly, and not every one of us has been called to preach the gospel publicly, but you know, every believer should be able, when the opportunity comes, to be able to tell other people what Jesus has done for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is a verse that says, Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. So that when you're around other people, you can call up this and share with them. Let me share with you the gospel. Well, what is the gospel, briefly? The gospel is, is that all people have fallen short of God's ideal of what we ought to be. We call this falling short sin. It means to miss the mark. We've all sinned. And we all suffer because of our sin. Our sin causes us to be separated from the God who created us and loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. And God knew after all the things that we've tried, we couldn't save ourselves. So he sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for us. We deserve to be punished for our sins, but Jesus took our punishment for us. If you will say to God right now, God, I know I have sinned against you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me. I ask you to forgive my sin. And I turn from my sin to trust Jesus as my Savior. And I'm committing myself to follow you now. Now folks, you memorize a few scriptures to go with that. And a few illustrations. And you can share with any person, anywhere, anytime what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want you to notice also the verse tells us that Jesus healed the sick. Do you see that in verse 35? Now there's nobody here in this room who's going to stand up and proclaim, I'm not. No one today has the gift of healing on par with Jesus or the apostles. But did you know when we pray for the sick, we are engaging in the ministry of healing. Now God always heals. Sometimes he heals physically down here. Sometimes people recover. Sometimes that's God's will. And we pray for that. And what a joy it is to see when God answers that. But you know it's also an answer to prayer when God heals and delivers a person into eternity where they have no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more tears. Now, I'm still of the group. If God says he's getting up a busload right now to head up there, I don't want to be on that busload. But how wonderful it is to be engaged in the ministry of healing, of praying for people and seeing God work in their lives, to be involved in meeting those physical and spiritual needs of people. What are some of those physical needs? You remember when Jesus says, in that you have done this unto the least of these, my children, you've done it unto me. You remember some of those things that Jesus mentions in that passage? It's Matthew 25, by the way. Just go there and just read it, and it'll tell you that how we minister to people in practical ways and meet their physical needs is we give them clothing, we feed them when they need food, 
got an opportunity to do that this week. We had these opportunities to, to go out and visit prisoners. We have opportunities to show hospitality to strangers, neighbors around us. We have all of these practical ways that we can minister to other people. And that's what ministry is. It's ministering to others in the name of Jesus. But I want you to notice also that Jesus prayed for workers. Look at verse 38. Now, I'm expecting at least somebody in here to realize and say to me, Brother Sid, (laughs) I read verse 38. Verse 38 doesn't say Jesus prayed for workers. It said Jesus commanded his disciples to pray for workers. Now, if that's what you're reading... You're not just dreaming it. It's true. You're correct. So what do I mean Jesus prayed for workers? Well, I want to go at it from a different angle. I think you would agree with me that Jesus never, or never commanded his disciples to do anything that he himself had not done. Are you on board with that? Over in Luke chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, there's a passage of Scripture, or 12 and 13. There's a passage of Scripture where Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. Before he called his disciples, he cries out to God in prayer. And he says, God, I want you to show me those you have pointed to be with me. And then after that night was over, it says he called the 12 apostles. Now, there were a lot of people there. But he came down from that mountain after spending time in prayer and he called those to be his co-workers. And in fact, the Apostle Paul later will say in his letter to the Corinthians, he will say, you know, one plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase and listen to the phrase he uses. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, we are God's co-workers. Jesus prayed God would give him co-workers. And this morning, what I want to know is, will you join with me in praying that God will send more workers into his harvest field? You know, if we pray that, there will be people that God will call out from among this congregation and around us and people we've not met yet around this area who he will bring forth to be workers in his harvest field in response to our prayers. Can you imagine a time where we have so many people who want to work and serve here? We're just trying to find out Here, here's something you can go do. You know, we've never done it before, but we're glad God sent you to us. Let's go at it. Let's do it. We don't have a list of people. We don't have five people we need on that list. We got more workers than we have things that we have created for people to do. That'd be awesome. And of those workers... 
to have them go beyond the four walls of this church to go out to Hendersonville, to go over into East Tennessee, to go beyond these four walls to different corners of the United States to share the gospel with people as we have ministry teams going out from our church. More than that, these workers would go beyond the four walls of our church, beyond the United States, and go to other countries and other cultures. We have opportunities to do that. been presented to us this morning. God works through our prayers. If it were not so, I would not be standing here before you today. You see, when I was 14 years old, On a Saturday morning, I sat around the kitchen table in our home in Houston, Texas, and I said, God, I want you to forgive my sin. Jesus, I believe you're the Savior. I ask you to save me now. And he did. Six years later, on a Tuesday afternoon, I'm a sophomore in college at Baylor University, I knelt down beside my bed, and in desperation, I cried out to God. I said, God, give me a reason to live greater than myself. And he did. I started reading the Bible And God started opening up my eyes. And and I started applying the Bible to my life. And God started working inside of me. And I'd be walking down the sidewalks at Baylor University and they'd say, Hey, Woody, why are you smiling? And I'd just tell them what Jesus had done for me. I didn't know they called that witnessing. And through his word, I surrendered, God, whatever you want to do with my life. From about that time for the next 11 years, I prayed God would send me a God-fearing, Jesus-loving, church-attending wife. For the first nine years... I kept looking, and in the ninth year, God said to me, Sid, why don't you just focus on becoming the right person instead of looking for the right person? And you know, it was a good point, because if God was going to send the kind of person I was praying for, I should have concluded that person was going to be looking for that same kind of person to marry themselves. Two years later, God brought Julie to me. And in the words of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, he did exceeding abundantly above and beyond everything that I thought or asked that a wife could be. God 
works through prayer. And this morning, I want to say to you, if you have never asked Jesus to save you, do it now. Do it now. And he will. Right now. Right now. And maybe you have been praying about something for a long time, and God hadn't answered I want you to know that if you've been praying for something for a long time and God hasn't answered, why don't you ask God to show you why he hasn't answered? You know, a lot of times what he'll do is he'll show that the real reason he had you in prayer wasn't to, you know, he could do this anytime, right? I mean, he doesn't even need us to be involved. He spoke the world into existence with the word. He can do anything just like that. That, Your request, that's not a biggie. But maybe he got you to the point and said, you know, the problem's not what you're asking for. The problem's you. I want to change something in you. And sometimes God's working in circumstances and in other people's lives because he wants to do something in them before he answers your prayer request. And let me give you a principle. Set your gaze on God and only glance at your request. Because you know what we typically do? We gaze at our request And occasionally we glance at God. Set your gaze on God and only glance at your request. And I think it will all bring us to a point where we will have the confidence to begin praying this way. Lord, if you have something better for me, just cancel my request and let's go with your plan. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to us through your word. And thank you for being so real down to earth. One of us who can identify with us and the things that we go through. And Father, right now, in the best way we know how, we want to surrender ourselves. And we want to see as you saw, feel as you felt. so that in and through us you can do through us what you did the best thing that could ever happen at Christmas is that you would receive God's gift Jesus as your savior if you're watching online or in this room with us this morning would you do that today And then if you're online listening, would you contact the church and let us know that you've made a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or better yet, if you're in the area, come by and speak to us during the week. Let us know your decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning. Don't leave this morning without coming forward to tell one of the ministers on our staff. There's a team of us here, and we'd like to talk with you about your decision. 
let you know how to take the next step in following Jesus. Let's stand together as we respond to God this morning in prayer. Singing. Okay. 